I will be reading from 1 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 13 from the complete Jewish Bible. And it reads, So the men of Kiriath-Uriam came and brought back the Ark of Adonai. They took it to the home of Abadav on the hill and appointed his son Eleazar to guard the Ark of Adonai. From the day that the Ark arrived at Kiriath-Uriam, a long time elapsed, 20 years, and all the people of Israel yearned for Adonai. Shemuel addressed all the people of Israel. He said, if you are returning to Adonai with all your heart, then be done with the foreign gods and Ashtaroth that you have with you and direct your hearts to Adonai. If you will serve only him, he will rescue you from the power of the Lishtim. So the people of Israel banished the, Bil the Bileam and the Ashtaroth and served only Adonai. Shemuel said, gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray for you to Adonai. So they gathered together at Mizpah, drew water, and poured it out before Adonai, fasted that day, and sat there. We have sinned against Adonai. Shemuel began serving as judge over the people of Israel at Mizpah. When the, when the Lishtim heard that the people of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the leaders of the Lishtim marched up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard about this, they were afraid of the Lishtim. The people of Israel said to Shemuel, don't cry don't stop crying out to Adonai, our God, for us to save you from the power of the Lishtim. Shemuel took a baby lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to Adonai. Then Shemuel cried to Adonai for Israel, and Adonai answered him. As Shemuel was presenting the burnt offering, the Lishtim advanced to attack Israel. But this time, Adonai thundered violently over the Lystium, throwing them into such confusion that they were struck down from Israel. The men of Israel went out from Mizpah, pursuing the Lystium and attacking them all the way to Beit-Kar. Shemuel took a stone, placed it between Mizpah and Shen, and gave it the name Ebenezer, Stone of Help, explaining Adonai was help will help us until now. Thus, the Lishtim were humbled, so they, so they no longer entered Israel's territory. And the hand of Adonai was against the Lishtim as long as Shemuel lived. May the Lord have a blessing over his word. By the way, it's Plishtim, which is the Philistines, in case you're wondering what, what that word was. Um, another exercise in Hebrew today, this morning, is that... Our celebration of the resurrection is called Yom HaTchiyah. Can you say Tchiyah? Tchiyah. I, I, I was encouraged to pursue in faith the, uh, the notion that uh, over a lifetime, all of us would learn to say Tchiyah. So I stand before you by faith. Uh, by the way, tchiyah means to make alive. 
the Hebrew word for to live is chaya. So tchiya means to make alive. So now you have it. Um, and I, I realize that this might take a while. So don't be surprised if you hear yom hatchiya again and again and again. That is how we learn, right? Amen? Okay. Uh, the rest of the body of Messiah, follow our brothers and sisters, uh, celebrated Yom HaTchiyah last weekend, except, of course, they didn't call it that. Um, I was intrigued to see a big, humongous ad in the Denver Post that uh, Hobby Lobby put. They, that's something they do every year. They had a picture, um, a representation of Yeshua ascending and the disciples looking up. Then we live real close to a car dealer named Barbie Ford off Evans and Holly, And they had a big um, poster, a big bulletin board saying, He is risen! Exclamation point. And um, I was pleased to see that. Um, and you may or may not be aware of the fact that resurrection is a very uh, essential part of traditional Judaism. Each day when an Orthodox Jew recites his prayers, um, there are, there's an article, 13 articles of faith, which include an affirmation of the resurrection. I believe in perfect faith in the resurrection of the dead. Um, and also in the funeral services, traditional Jewish funeral services, there is a hope of the resurrection in the liturgy, Tchiyat HaMetim, uh, but it's really never talked about. It's interesting to see what God has been doing in speaking to Jewish people about Yeshua um, a number of years ago. Uh, believe it was about 25 years ago, a German-Jewish rabbi by the name of Pinchas Lapid wrote a book called The Resurrection of Jesus in which he stated that he considers the resurrection of Yeshua to be a historical fact. However, and that's a big however, he does not consider Yeshua to be the Messiah. There's been a lot of movement in Jewish scholarly circles um, to affirm Yeshua as, as a Jew, as a good Jew, as a rabbi. Uh, you may have heard a book called Kosher Jesus by Shmuley Boteach. He's a very controversial rabbi. And Dr. Michael Brown, who is a Messianic Jew, responding to him and saying, now you want to know the real Kosher Jesus, let me tell you. Um, but you know, I, I find, I'm intrigued to realize that in some ways what is played out in a traditional Jewish community and what is played out among fellow believers as far as the resurrection isn't terribly different. Now please don't get ready to stone me. Uh, I know if you are a believer in Yeshua, in Jesus, you will stand very firmly and say, yes, I believe in the resurrection of Yeshua. However, let me ask you a question. 
How many times during the past 365 days have you thought about the resurrection? More than once? Twice? Hallelujah. If you have thought about the resurrection more than once, twice, three times, you are, I would, I would say you are an unusual person. Because for most of us, the resurrection is off-center, off-stage, because we are consumed with daily reality. And the facts on the ground, you know, what I need to do today, tomorrow, etc. And we don't really make the connection between the fact that Yeshua rose from the dead and the fact that He is active and alive and engaged in our life. Because He rose from the dead, He is participating in our redemption. You may have, may have noticed the verses from Hebrews chapter 7, because Yeshua lives forever, He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, He is able to save completely those who come to God through Him because He always lives to intercede for them. So the resurrection for us is a pivotal part of who we are and our faith, our reality. And if you, as you read the book of Acts particularly, but also the rest of the New Testament, you see that for the early believers, the resurrection was front and center for them. Let me give you a couple of quotes in Acts 4. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Yeshua, and much grace was upon them all. And as you read the different messages, the different sermons in the book of Acts, you see that often what is presented is something connecting with, with the audience, and then sooner or later, there is the emphasis on the resurrection. A couple of statements from Paul's writings, 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Messiah has been raised. And if Messiah has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Now think about that. That's an incredibly strong statement. This is essentially saying that if Yeshua had not been raised from the dead that our faith is essentially worth as much as believing that the moon is made of Swiss cheese. Here's another statement, Romans chapter 8, And if the spirit of him who raised Yeshua from the dead is living in you, he who raised Yeshua from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Now, obviously, the fuller picture of that is that the time when all of us would enter into the resurrection and get new bodies, which would be awesome. You know, I would love to jump like Superman and uh, do all these neat things. Seriously, wh what the Lord is talking about here, uh, what Paul is talking about here, is because Yeshua rose from the dead, because He's alive and engaged with us, we have the power to live. If you remove the resurrection, then our faith is just like another religion that is works 
oriented that says to you, you got to do this, 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 and this, and let me give you 15,000 more regulations to help you follow and to be the righteous person you're supposed to be. With the resurrection, the same power that raised Yeshua from the dead is at work in us today. So, what is the power of God all about, folks? This power that was engaged in, in raising Yeshua from the dead. How do you tap into it? You know, what's interesting is that sometimes you hear folks who are believers talk about the power of God somewhat like electrical power. You know, that what you need to do is uh, plug in your your uh, extension cord into an outlet and boom, you come alive and your motor is engaged and so on and so forth. There is some truth to that. However, we often talk about the power of God and the spirit of God as an it, as a force. We forget that the main activity of the spirit of God is to mediate the presence of God. In other words, because of the Spirit of God, you and I know that God is with us. That's what Yeshua promised to us. And so the resurrection and the power of God, first of all, begins by us being connected to God, our having a relationship with Him, our knowing that He is alive and at work in our life, and are desiring more, not of it, folks, not of it, but of Him. Do you see the difference? You know, we are so consumer-oriented that we want stuff from God, and we view Him sometimes as a, um, as a dispenser of goodies, and we want the good things from God. We don't understand that our life is really about Him. Hunger not so much for the things that God can give us. And yes, we all need them, we all need them, all want them, but hunger for God. And what you see here is a nation that is hungry for God. And I want to pause just for a minute and, and pray um, that God would open our eyes to see what hunger for God looks like. Lord God, we desire to know more of you. Like Moses did when he said, Lord, show me your power and your glory. And Lord God, we desire and ask that you would open our eyes and cause us to understand, Lord God, what it means to hunger for you. And to know, Lord, how you satisfy that hunger. Amen. And how that you move in our life in power. And how that you do your niflaot, your awesome things. We thank you and praise you, Lord God, in the name of Yeshua. Amen. Amen. This is somewhat unusual resurrection passage. And so I want you to put on your thinking caps for a moment. Uh, in verse 2, it was a long time, 20 years in all, that the ark remained 
et Kiryat Yearim, and all the people of Israel mourned and mourned after God. I don't know if you noticed the fact that the, the people are hungry for God here. Now, let, let me backtrack here and help you get some kind of perspective on this. Um, the nation of Israel was in a spiritual cellar for, for centuries. From the time that Israel came into the land until Samuel's time, you're looking at a couple hundred years when the people pursued and chased after God, Baalim, the Baals, you know, the Papa God, and Ashtoreth, the Mama God, and, and how God tried to chasten them and discipline them and get them the message. And the people got the message for a year or two or five or ten and then went right back to the same old pit. By the way, uh, archaeologists found little figurines of Ashtarti, Ashtoret, uh, within stone's throw from the first temple. Now think about that. Make the connection. Here people would come to worship God and in their houses they would also feel like they needed to have the figurines of Ashtoret in order to worship. Why? Simply because they wanted to cover all bases. You know, we come to worship God. He doesn't come through well. By golly, we will find another deity to help us. You think that's strange? Well, we are exactly in that frame of mind. Think about it. You know, you, you have a major need. You cry out to God. God doesn't seem to come through. And because you're a good American in the 21st century, you want things to be instant. God does not come through in an instant, in a nanosecond. Um, you know, he has the chutzpah not to do that. And so our inclination is to say, God, you didn't come through for me. I'm going to find some other ways, some other means. What we're really not saying quite in that language is we're going to find another deity, another God that we will worship that will help us out. Whether it's our strength and our wisdom and our self-power, you know, where we put ourselves on the throne, or whether it's somebody else. Same kind of inclination, folks, is a very, um, very human. Nothing seems to change as far as human nature. And that's what you find with Israel over and over and over again. Um, the people had been depraved, to give me a couple of examples, the sons of the high priest, when people brought sacrifices, would, would come up to the offering and say, get out of the way. I want this. This looks like a, a good porterhouse steak. I want it. And they would grab it and take it. They also took the, the women that served in the tabernacle and uh, they slept with them. God was outraged and another example was when the children of Israel said you know uh, the ark of God is big heap medicine you know the Philistines wiped us out uh, if we bring the ark of the Lord um, there will be all kinds of power again understand 
not referring to God himself and who he is, but referring to the power. The power will be there and will defeat the Philistines while they come and they fight with the Philistines. The Philistines are initially very uh, intimidated, but then they say, hey guys, uh, we are Philistines. Let's roll up our sleeves and get to work and wipe out these Israelites, and that's exactly what they did. You may be familiar with the story in these early chapters in 1 Samuel, how that the Philistines got the Ark of the Lord and they put it in, in the temple of their god, Dagon, and how that the Lord did all kinds of tricks. They find Dagon flat uh, the next morning, and they put him up. Then the next morning after that, they find him not only flat, but his head and arms chopped off, and on and on and on. Uh, they eventually got the fact that the God of the Hebrews is really greater than their God, Dagon, and they sent it. What did the Israelites do? Well, they don't know what to do with it. Why? Because they were clueless. They were biblically illiterate. They were not familiar with God's Torah that gave out very explicit instructions how you handle the precious things of God. You know, you don't touch it. You, you put poles through the rings and you, that's the way you carry it. Well, the people of Israel were intrigued. The, if you have seen Raiders of the Lost Ark, you will know the scene where they ostensibly uh, get the Ark of the Lord, Hollywood version, and there is a French archaeologist who is intrigued to find out what's in the Ark of the Lord. And, you know, he, he pops the lid open and sees a bunch of sand and Eventually, uh, in, in, in a moment or so, light and power of God comes and wipes him out, wipes the Nazi uh, officer and so on and so forth. Very famous scene, but that's what the people of Israel try to do. They, they were clueless. They were clueless about what the Torah said, and they tried to look into it. We're not quite sure exactly what that meant. But God didn't appreciate that. And a number of them died. And so the ark stayed there because they didn't know what to do with it. The ark stayed for 20 years in Kiryat Yarim, this particular location. So not a great beginning. The people are spiritually dense, biblically illiterate. They don't know the Torah. They don't know their God. Here... And then all of a sudden here in the beginning of chapter 7, you see that the people are hungry for God. And the Hebrew word there, naha, is very strong. It literally means to mourn and to offer laments and to wail. Here it probably means they were drawn after the Lord. And they yearned for God. They had hunger for God. A deep hunger for God. Now you want to say, how on earth do you go in 20 years from a people who are spiritually in a mess 
to a situation 20 years later where the people are hungry for God. Scripture doesn't give us all the details. What we do know is that Samuel, at this point, is busy preaching the Word of God prophetically to his people. And over a period of time, God gets through to the people. And this is what Scripture tells us, that the Word of God in Hebrews 4, the Word of God is alive and actively powerful and sharper than two-edged sword. If you and I read the Word of God and meditate on it and ask God to speak to us, He will sooner or later. You say amen to that. And yes, folks, there are times when we look at Scripture and we are tired or preoccupied, we don't get what it's saying. It's just a bunch of words on a page, or maybe we get it intellectually. But folks, part of the message is that if you have a hunger for God, that as you read His Word, and as you invite Him to speak to you, He will do that. He will do that. He knows how you're wired. He knows how to communicate to you. He has your cell phone number and your email address and all of that. And so what you have here is some transformation. The power of God is at work. And folks, we, we think of the power of God, of people rising from the dead and departing the Red Sea. Let me tell you that in Scripture... The transformation of a person's heart is the biggest miracle. Amen. The biggest miracle. Why? Because we tend to be hard-hearted. We tend to be rebellious. God tells us to do something. We say, no, God, not interested. Or forget it. Or I have other things to do. And somehow the people come to Samuel... And they express this hunger for God. And I imagine in Samuel's place, he must have said to them something. He must have felt like, it's about time. What he does say to them in verse 3, if you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts. He is not taking it for good money because he knows his people. If you are indeed Turning to the Lord, the word there, shuva, shav, has a sense of you're going one direction and then somehow God gets a hold of you and you turn 180 degrees. That's what repentance means, folks. It doesn't mean just a bunch of words. It means a transformation in life. If indeed, in verse 3, you are returning to the Lord, then there has to be some action. Rid yourself of the foreign gods, Baal, Baal, and Ashtarot. They're foreign. In other words, they don't belong to you. Your God is the God of Israel. You have no business following these false gods. There's a price. There's a price. Choosing to follow God, folks... Going for broke with him requires a commitment, requires a price on our part. 
where we say, I want to worship God and God alone. In other words, practically speaking, you say that what matters the most in my life is not fame, not success, not money, not affirmation, not even health. What matters the most to me is to know that I have, I have a hunger for God and, and to know that God responds to that and God blesses me with more of who he is, just like of Moses. God spoke to Moses and Moses said, Lord, unless you go before me, I'm not interested. It's not about me, not about my agenda. It's about who you are your priorities. Not interested in idol worship. Folks, let me tell you something. When God speaks to you and you recognize the fact that you've been worshiping a false god, it is very humbling. It is very humbling because you recognize the fact that you really have been putting other things above God in your affection and in your devotion. And Samuel says to them here at the end of verse 3, commit yourself to the Lord and serve Him only. That's the NIV. The, the full flavor of it is much bigger than that. The Hebrew word hachinu has the sense of initiate, prepare, maintain, and establish. In other words, you don't just get swept up emotionally and say, yeah, 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 rah, 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 I will do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. But rather, you begin the process, and then you learn to, to follow through. You learn to continue and have a heart that is devoted to God and go the full distance and say, Lord, I want to live my life from here on, fully and completely committed to you and serving you. Devote yourself to the Lord and serve Him alone. Another Hebrew word, I'm throwing a number of Hebrew words. I hope you'll catch some of them, maybe write some of them. They're words that you see throughout Scripture over and over again. Serve him. Eved has the sense of both serving and worshiping. If you worship God, you serve him. If you serve him, you worship him. The two go hand in hand. You don't have this notion scripturally that you worship God and you sing songs and you dance and do whatever and then you go someplace else and undertake a set of actions that is completely different. You know, it, God seems to be narrow-minded, folks. He doesn't really like and appreciate hypocrisy too much. The Lord says to Israel through Samuel, prepare your heart and what I will do to you, no big deal to me, is I will save you from the Philistines. Yeah, the big bad wolf who had been oppressing you for decades and decades, for me, it's no big deal. The big deal is getting a hold of your rotten hearts. 
It doesn't say that. This is an Urbach uh, version here. Now, please realize Samuel is speaking to a nation that has been oppressed by the Philistines, and he says to them, God will deliver you from the Philistines. Either he heard from God and knew what God was saying to him, or else he was Meshuggi. He was nutty. You know, to stand and make that kind of statement, think about it. Follow God and he will take care of all these things. We think, of course, that delivering Israel from the Philistines was the big work. Again, remember, it really is the after after thought on God's part. The big work was to get people to a place where they were yearning for God. In verse 4, the Israelites put away the Baals and the Storet and the serve God only. That, folks, is the miracle. Because the people of Israel were addicted and hooked on idol worship. So for them to say, okay, we're really serious, we have put away these gods and goddesses, meant that the power of God was really at work. Now in verse 5, Samuel says to them, assemble all of Israel at Mitzpah, which is a place of gathering for them, and I will pray for you. On that day, they fasted and they confessed, we have sinned against the Lord. Why did they need to do that? Well, you know, there are times when we do what we do in private, in person, and then there are other times when we come together corporately and we stand and we say, we together as a body are committed to serving God and pursuing Him and His plans and purposes. And that's what you have here. You have a national confession of sin. You have the confirmation of the covenant with God. The people are saying, Lord, yes, we have been here. Yes, we have done all these rotten things, but we want to follow you. So it was a spiritual affirmation, but also Samuel gathered them together and basically said, look, I promised you that God was going to save you from the Philistines. Now, come together and see how God is going to do it. Now, if you are aware of the history of the time, you know that the Philistines were very aggressive, very military people, and they had a chokehold on the nation of Israel. And so when they get the word that the people of Israel gather together, their thought is there's going to be war here. And their attitude is we will preempt the war. We will come. And so the Philistines come and they prepare to attack Israel. Why? Because they're just like any other enemy who has a hold on you who doesn't want to release you. Remember, Pharaoh released the people of Israel out of bondage and then sat there for a few minutes and thought, what did I just do? That was stupid. Uh, I did what? Let's go get the Israelites, get them back, get them back into, into business. And I believe that's what's going on. And on a spiritual plane, folks, folks, 
If you make a decision for God, guaranteed your decision to walk in faith will be tested. Where it will feel like all of a sudden all hell has broken loose. And you'll step back and say, I did what? I made a decision to do what? Uh, I must have been hallucinating. It was last night's pizza or something. It wasn't God. And as God works in your life, in my life, remember that His goal is not for us to be static or to slip backwards, but His goal is to get us to move forward and advance into maturity spiritually. And each one of us has all kinds of things that hold us back. The writer of Hebrews describes that as get rid of all the things that weigh you down that keep you from running the race. You know, this for me makes a very strong connection because I ran track when I was in high school and part of the picture of preparing for the race is is getting rid of all the heavy clothes and putting on light clothes so that you'll be able to take off. And following the Lord, folks, has all kinds of hindrances in your life. You're preoccupied by this. You're preoccupied by that. You're preoccupied by, by work. You're preoccupied by relationships. Things that loom large and seem like a gigantic mountain that make you feel like it's impossible to follow God. Because you're not thinking about God. You're thinking about all these other things. And the Lord wants to take you from a place where the mountain is in front of you and basically say, you see the mountain? I'm going to make it go flat. But you'll have to learn to trust me. You have to learn to trust me. Each one of us has strongholds in our lives that hinder us from growing into maturity in the Lord, from learning to follow Him, learning to do what He's called us to do. And here you have to remember that the children of Israel, <clears throat> the last time they had a fight with the Philistines, they lost 4,000 men. Scary. Scary. And the Philistines are coming. What are they going to do? Are they going to freak out? Are they going to push the panic button? Or are they going to say, Lord, your guy Samuel promised that if we put away all the foreign gods and if we devote ourselves to you, that you'll take care of this problem. Okay, now, here you are. What are you going to do about it? You look at, at this chapter and you see that their faith is not gigantic. It's not as if they're saying, yes, God, we know you're going to do it. But they turn to Samuel and they say, yell big and yell loudly to God so that he will hear you. Make sure that God hears you. We're not really sure that he would hear us. He would hear you. And he told you to tell us, that the Philistines will be taken care of. So tell him, remind him. And you notice 
if you look at this portion carefully, that the moment Samuel begins to pray, things don't happen. You know, and God's sense of timing gives us heartburn sometimes. You know, you wait for God and, and you say, Lord, I really need this and I really need this now. And you get the sense from God of, no, you need to learn to wait. Because my timing will come and you need to learn to trust me. And Samuel engages in this worship of bringing the burnt offering, offering to the Lord. And then at some point in God's good time, he uh, rolls up his sleeves and get to work, gets to work and just gets the Philistines, these big mighty warriors, gets them all confused, all turned around. They, they don't know what they're doing. And the people of Israel are able to chase them and kill them. And it's a totally different scenario, folks. And this is what God does with us. He sometimes takes us from places of failure where we blow it, where we screwed up because we weren't walking with the Lord or doing something wrong. And he takes us in parallel paths and says, okay, you've, you've been here before. Now we're going to do it right. You're going to trust me and you're going to watch me work. And we step back and say, okay, God, we trust you. And then God does his thing. God does his thing. And notice that from that point on, Israel has no problem with the Philistines. The Philistines were, were basically like, uh, like gigantic mosquitoes. Every time they had a harvest, the Philistines sent out a raiding party. But yet from this point on, because Israel trusted God... They had no more problems with the Philistines. This is an act of faith. It's a challenge. <clears throat> it's a struggle. It's part of the growth and maturation for the nation of Israel. It's the power of God, folks, at play. Why? Because the nation is willing to trust God not the power of God so much, but God himself, and then sees him at work. And as we read earlier today in the responsive reading, thanks be to God, this is 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. That's an ongoing thing, folks. And yes, we have our ups and downs, and we bob and weave, and two steps forward, one step back, but God gives us the victory. And because of that, as Paul says, stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. And yes, reality is that we all have our moments. Or sometimes we all have our hours. <laughs> or our days. But the Lord wants to bring us back to this same place at Mitzpah where we see the Philistines coming and we're going to say, okay, are we going to trust God or are we going to trust ourselves? Are we going to trust God or are we going to freak out? 
then learn to trust God, and then do what Samuel does. He puts a stone, calls it Ebenezer, or in Hebrew, Eben Azer. This is the stone that reminds me that God came through. Now, for us, the resurrection is a gigantic Evan Ezer. God came through. Because of that, it is a reminder for us that the same power that raised Yeshua from the dead is at work in us. He is active. And part of what He wants from us is not perfection because perfection doesn't exist here. He wants us to give Him our hearts to, to put away the false gods where we trust in things other than Him, where we trust in ourselves or others and where we need to, where we want to give Him our heart and say, Lord, here I am. Maybe you feel like, Lord, there's not much of me, but here I am. I, I, I want to follow. I want to pursue you. I want to go for broke. That's number one concern for me. Not the Philistines, but a greater hunger, greater desire to know God. And then step back and see how God deals with the Philistines. No big deal for him. God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power and love and a sound mind. Would you please stand? Let's just take a, a few moments here to be quiet in the Lord's presence. And Lord God, we stand together. As a congregational mishpacha, congregational family and, and friends visiting. And Lord God, we want to honor you and exalt you and give our hearts to you and, and turn away from the false gods and goddesses, Lord. Thank you, Lord God, that you know us intimately. You know us, Lord, when we are faithful. You know us when we're faithless. And Lord God, we pray that on this day, Yom Lord God, that your power would be at work in us. Lord God, to give us a greater hunger for you, greater faithfulness in following you. And Lord God, we pray for that measure of faith to trust you, that when the Philistines come, Lord, that we would depend on you and see you at work, see you, Lord, neutralize the enemy neutralize, Lord God, the oppression, neutralize strongholds and receive all the honor and the glory in our life. Lord God, we pray that your Ruach would come upon us 
individually and corporately, Lord God, that, that we would cling and cleave to you, Lord. In the name of Yeshua. Amen.